Well, as we get into uh, Obadiah this morning, we're beginning a new uh, series of messages that'll that'll take us through this month of March. Uh, it's called One and Done. I thought that was appropriate for the season of March Madness that we're uh, entering into. So we're looking at the, the books of the Bible that just have one chapter. There are five of them, and uh, not often do we spend much time in these five short books. Um, I don't know that I, I know that I've never preached a message on Obadiah. I don't know that I've ever heard one preached on Obadiah. And so I'm going to try my best this morning uh, to do justice to this text. I, I'll be honest and tell you, in planning this series, um, I, I was really hopeful that this would kind of be a lighter deal um, because we kind of came out of Lamentations and, and then we're moving toward Easter. And I thought maybe this will be a little easier preparation wise so I can spend some more time preparing for Easter doesn't look like that's going to work out that way. Uh, as I got into this, I realized there, there is a great challenge of being able to try to cover even some of these smaller, shorter books in, in one swath because you have to really understand what's going on. If you don't understand the context of Obadiah, uh, you're really not going to understand this book and you're not going to understand this sermon. So let me do a little bit of background here and I'll try not to belabor this for those who are a little bit uh, weary of, of history, but you need to understand the history in order to understand what God is trying to teach us here through this book. And, and so I've entitled today's message, A Tale of Two Brothers. And the reason I've done that is because in order to understand Obadiah, you have to go all the way back to two brothers who were born in Genesis 25, and we know them as Jacob and Esau. And we find in, in Genesis 25 that, that Isaac, who was the, the promised son to Abraham, Isaac had been praying to God for his wife who was barren. They could not have children. And they were already, Isaac was already in his 40s at this point, And he was praying and asking God to open the womb. Some of you have experienced that kind of a season in life when you were asking and pleading with God to open the womb. Genesis 25, beginning in verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now the children struggled within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? And basically she's saying, Our prayer's been answered, and yet I'm miserable because of whatever's going on in here. Why is this happening? So she went to inquire of the Lord herself. She prayed and asked God for wisdom. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And by the way, that's a pattern we see repeated multiple times in the book of Genesis. That, that while in that culture they prized the firstborn, the firstborn got a double portion of the inheritance, the firstborn was considered to be the leader of the family, various times, at least a half dozen times in the book of Genesis alone, God pushes the firstborn to the side in order to make room for one farther down the line. By the way, this is a reminder that God has in a similar way pushed Adam to the side so that the second Adam might take his place and bring us redemption. I don't have time to spend a lot, a lot on that this morning, but there's a great truth there. So we see these two brothers from the very beginning, even in the womb, they are battling with one another. And as they come out, Esau first, all covered in, in red hair, as it says there uh, in Genesis 25, we see his younger brother Jacob comes out clinging to his heel. 
as if they had been in a wrestling match even in those last moments before they left the womb. And there's so these two brothers, so very different, not identical twins in any way, neither uh, in the way they looked nor in their personalities. And from their earliest of days, they were in a wrestling match with one another. There was a division. There was hostility between these brothers. And we know the story of how one day as, as Isaac was getting older and he's preparing to pass on his inheritance to his boys, and there was this thing called the birthright that normally went to the oldest brother, the oldest son would, would receive the birthright, the, the main part of the inheritance would be the one that would be uh, tasked with really carrying on the family name and receiving the blessing of the Lord through the father. We know that story of how Jacob, whose name meant deceiver, went in to his father and pretended to be his older brother, dressed himself up in, in, in hairy clothing and, and pretended to, to be his brother Esau and tricked his father, who was now blind in his old age, into giving him the birthright in place of his brother. And, of course, you can imagine how angry his brother was. If you've, ever, if you've ever played some kind of a prank on one of your siblings and received the wrath that came afterward, you can imagine how this older brother responded. In fact, the Bible says he wanted to kill his younger brother, and he was just plotting for the day that his father would pass away so that he could take his younger brother's life. They were at enmity with one another. And this enmity did not end with Jacob and Esau. There was a day when they somewhat reconciled later on after being separated for, for 20 plus years and, and Jacob had gone to a foreign land to escape the wrath of his brother. They were reunited and there was somewhat of a, of a reconciliation that happened and they both attended their father's funeral and there was, there was somewhat of a coming together again and yet ultimately Edom, or Esau decided to depart to the land of Edom to live apart from his brother Jacob and that was just a picture of the continuing division that existed between them and that division became not just a division between two brothers but a division between two nations as we walk down the path of Old Testament history we see a continual wrestling between Edom and Israel between the descendants of Esau and the descendants of Jacob, there's a continual wrestling that takes place all throughout the Old Testament. If we fast forward from the days of Abraham to the days of Moses, you'll remember Moses leads God's people of the Israel, of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, out of the prom, out of the Egypt into the Promised Land. And as they're leaving Egypt, they had to travel through Edom in order to get to the Promised Land. And they come to the border of Edom, the land of Esau's descendants, and they ask the king of Edom for safe passage through his country that they might take the short route to get to Canaan, to get to the promised land. But the king of Edom refused and said, there's no way if you come into my country, we're going to destroy you. We will go to war against you rather than allowing you just to travel through our land. And that continued that rivalry that dissension that hostility that they had experienced with one another 
Fast forward another 500 years to the days of King David, the golden age of Israel. This was the, the best of the years for God's people Israel. And in the days of David, he actually waged war against the Edomites and conquered them. And there was a long season in which the Edomites were actually subject to the Israelites. You can imagine how angry they were when that happened. And again, the enmity, the hostility increased, the wrestling continued and then you fast forward another 500 years to what we looked at recently in the book of lamentations to the day and not and no longer the golden age of israel now the worst of days those days in 586 bc when the babylonians came into the the country of judea they came up to the main city of jerusalem and they breached the walls and they burned the city to the ground and what were the edomites doing when this happened that's what obadiah is addressing that the edomites were sitting on the sidelines and they were acting as cheerleaders for the babylonians Rather than siding with their own flesh and blood brothers, the Israelites, they were siding with the Babylonians. They went so far as to join in the looting of Jerusalem. And when they saw some folks from Jerusalem trying to escape as refugees to flee from the Babylonians, the Edomites themselves captured the fleeing refugees and brought them to the Babylonians. For their destruction. And this all began. Because of two brothers who could not get along. Church I want to say to us this morning. Divisions among us are serious business. Divisions among us are serious business. Pastor James Montgomery Boyce said it this way. Whenever there is hostility between two brothers or two nations or two churches, whatever it may be, and the one sees the other in misfortune, the natural thing, what Esau, what Edom, what Edom does here, the natural thing is to be happy about it. In our natural flesh, don't we like it when we feel like our enemies get what they deserve? In our flesh, don't we tend to rejoice when those who have set themselves against us or over us get their just desserts? And yet has not our Lord called us to a place of loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us? In the flesh, we rejoice when our enemies falter and fail. And yet I would say to us, just before we get into this text this morning, let me say to us, let's talk about this on the church level for just a moment. Church, I am praying that God will put in us the mindset that we are able to wholeheartedly rejoice when any church in this community does well and grows, and flourishes, and experiences revival. When we pray for revival, when we not just pray for it here in this place, would we be content for revival to occur at the church six miles up the road? I pray that we would be, but I know in my own heart there's a wrestling there. The flesh and the spirit war with one another against that idea. 
And just like we ought to rejoice when any other church does well and grows and flourishes and is revived in the Lord, we also ought to lament. As we learned last month about this act of lament, we ought to lament when any church experiences suffering, downfall, and disgrace. May we never find ourselves on the sidelines rooting for the enemy against our brothers. That's the message of Obadiah in a heartbeat. May we not be among those who would rejoice in the downfall of our brothers. This led to Edom's condemnation. We don't know who the prophet Obadiah was. There's about a dozen different guys in the, New T- in the Old Testament that are named Obadiah. None of them seem to be this guy. We don't know anything about him other than what he has written here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is one of only two Old Testament books that are, that are geared toward nations that are not Israel, toward Gentile nations, this one in particular being the nation of Edom. And there are three things that we learn from the book of Obadiah that I think are so very clear and pointed and needful for us to understand. The first of these is this. Obadiah teaches us that there is a coming retribution for God's enemies. And again, our tendency to rejoice when our enemies falter and fail or those we perceive as enemies, even though they might very well be brothers, as was the case here. We, we, when we see our enemies falter and fail, our, our, our inclination in the flesh is to rejoice. And yet we need to be reminded that it is God who will judge. It is God who will bring condemnation where it's due. And we need not be rejoicing in the downfall of our enemies as Edom was doing on that day when Babylon came in as an act of God's judgment against Israel. We need not be on the sidelines rejoicing for the enemy against our brothers. There is a coming retribution for the enemies of God. And and he judges Edom for one main sin, and it's the sin of pride. Pride, this me-centered mentality where I exalt myself and think that I'm better than everyone else. That's where Edom was residing. And what was she prideful over? Uh, uh, several things. In verses 3 through 4, we see that Edom took pride in her armaments. The, if I were to show you the geography of Edom, uh, the, the main city of Edom was a city called Petra, which means rock. And it was up in the mountains and it was considered to be an impregnable fortress. The historians of that day wrote uh, that a dozen men could hold the city of Petra against an entire army because it was so well fortified. There was only one narrow passageway in which you could enter the city. It was so easy uh, to maintain that city. And they rejoiced, they took pride in their armaments, in their arms, in, in, in their location, in the fact that they would even say, no one can defeat us. Even though 500 years prior, they had been defeated by the Israelites. They said, no one can defeat us. We're safe here in our city. I think this same kind of pride exists right here in our own nation. We are a prideful people. We act as though we are some kind of an eternal nation that's been around forever. And yet in comparison with the greatest nations that have had rule and reign in this world, we are still so very young. And we are seeing in our day, are we not, 
the same kinds of effects that other nations have experienced just prior to their downfall, a turning away from God and engaging in, in rash immorality. We're seeing so many things that are falling apart. And it's so easy to take pride in ourselves and our own ability to secure our nation. Edom also took pride in her allies. They had made connections with Egypt and with others, with the Babylonians and, and other nations and saying, even if somebody did come against us, we've got strong allies who will raise up on our behalf and we'll defeat them. She also took pride in her acumen or her wisdom. Eden was considered to be a place of great wisdom. People from all over the world would come and they would seek out uh, the, the people of Eden because they were known for their insight, for their understanding. And yet the Lord says there in verse 8, I'm going to destroy all that. I'm going to make them look utterly foolish. They have prided themselves in their worldly wisdom and understanding. And he says, I'm going to destroy the wise men of Edom. It sounds harsh. And yet the Lord is so long-suffering. He has been patient with these folks for many hundreds of years. But now the day of judgment was coming. Why was God going to judge Edom? The same reason that he brings judgment upon any people because of their sin. But there were particular sins that Edom had committed, particularly against Israel during these days when the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem. Edom sinned, first of all, by boasting in Judah's ruin. Again, they were like cheerleaders on the sidelines. Go Babylon. Let's get this thing done. Destroy them. They boasted in Judah's ruin. Again, we should be very careful when we find ourselves boasting in the ruin of our enemies. There's a dangerous pride there that we need to stay far, far away from. But not only did they boast in Judah's ruin, but they also burgled her riches. As we see there in verse 13, they, were, they joined the Babylonians in looting the city. They came in and stole all of the treasures that God had given his people and, and carried them off to their own land. And if that wasn't bad enough, they went so far as in verse 14 to betray her refugees. Those that fled from Jerusalem. Many of them were captured by the Edomites. And they were carted back to the Babylonian army and turned over to the enemy. This is what sin will do. This is what a bitterness, a hard-heartedness toward our own brothers will do. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay and force you to pay much more than you ever wanted to pay. For Edom, this was going to be ultimate destruction. One pastor I was reading this week said, when was the last time you ate in an Edomite restaurant? When was the last time you heard somebody say, hey, I'm going to go to Edom on vacation? It's a beautiful country, by the way. 
But these people no longer exist because they allowed pride to have a foothold in their lives and and ultimately a stranglehold on their hearts. And it led them to ultimate destruction. And he talks about that destruction as in verse 15 as the day of the Lord. And this term is all throughout the prophets of the Old Testament. They are constantly talking about the day of the Lord. And we fast forward to the book of Revelation. And again, it talks about the day of the Lord. What is it? It's the day. It's the it's the consummation of God's condemnation upon those who've rebelled against him. And it also includes it also includes all the days that have pointed toward it. And so we saw in the book of Lamentations them describing the destruction of Jerusalem as the day of the Lord. Their destruction was a a foretaste of the day when God would destroy his enemies ultimately and finally. Thirty years later when the Babylonians, the same ones that the Edomites were rejoicing in, when they came in and destroyed Edom, it's very ironic, the ones that they were celebrating were their ultimate destroyers. When the Babylonians came 30 years later and destroyed Edom just as they had done Jerusalem. That was referred to as the day of the Lord. Now, for those who are trusting in Christ, the day of the Lord is something we ought to look forward to. And we pray, come soon, Lord Jesus. And we long for the coming of his kingdom. But we also need to be reminded the day of the Lord will be dreadful. It will be wrathful. It will be a day of condemnation and a a final day of judgment for those who continue in rebellion against God. And that's what the prophet is saying. Edom, the day of the Lord is coming. Within within those who were hearing in their own generation, 30 years later, they would see those that they had been rooting for came in and routed them. Those that they had been cheering for came in and destroyed them. How quickly it turns. Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction. Many of you know that phrase. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. It's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. If only Edom had heeded those words and humbled themselves and sought the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of the world. The world says rejoice over the fall of your enemies. The word of God says pray for your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Perhaps by doing so, they might turn to faith in your Savior. The second lesson from Obadiah is this. There is a coming restoration for God's people. He lays out the the first two-thirds of this book is all about Edom and the destruction that's coming and the reason why God is going to judge Edom because of her pride and, and her rejoicing in the downfall of Israel. But there is coming a restoration for God's people. Obadiah doesn't leave us on a sour note. He, he turns our eyes back toward the suffering people of Jerusalem and Judea and he reminds us that they were going to be restored. Even before God brought judgment upon the people of Jerusalem, he promised that 70 years later they would come back miraculously from their captivity in Babylon and be restored to their homeland, rebuild the city of Jerusalem. There was restoration promised for the people of God. And by the way, Jacob's release and return is our reassurance. 
Man, you go back to the days of Jacob and Esau when Jacob fled from his brother Esau and went to live in a foreign land and had to work basically as a slave for two decades as, as he is struggling in that place and then God leads him back to that promised land to a, a reunion with his brother and a restoration in the land. That was a foreshadowing of what God was going to do in the days following the Babylonian captivity. Yes, Jerusalem had been destroyed. It had been burned to the ground. Not one stone was left on another. But God had already promised that restoration was coming. And church, what this says to us is, if you feel like your life has been burned to the ground, look to the Lord. Trust Him. Recognize that His promise of restoration is not based upon your goodness. God didn't choose Jacob because he was a good dude. Read about Jacob. That dude was a mess. He was a deceiver and a liar and a cheat and a thief. And yet God, by his grace, chose him and redeemed him and brought him back to himself. The promise of those 70 years is found in Jeremiah 29. We know we all know Jeremiah 29, 11. We love this verse, but we don't think about the context of it very often. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, when you've been in Babylon for 70 years, I will visit you, I will fulfill to you my promise, and I will bring you back to this place. And we all know Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. I know the plans, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. We love that verse. We love that promise. And yet don't forget who it was spoken to. It was spoken to a people who had lost everything. This was not spoken in a day of great joy and rejoicing. This was spoken on the day of the greatest grief Israel had ever experienced. And yet God's promise remained. God's promise was true. Not only did Jacob's release and, and return remind us and give us reassurance but we see in verses 19 through 20 that Jacob's rescue would literally reorder every route, every direction. That's what you're seeing in these verses. And I know there's a lot of, a lot of names here that are hard uh, to pronounce. That's why I didn't like, make Matt read these verses. You're welcome, brother, uh, for that. And so, uh, but there's a lot of names here and, and, and locations. But if I could show you a map this morning, here's the picture. Jerusalem is right at the center of the map. And if you go a little south and to the east, you find Edom. When he references there in verse 19, Mount Esau. That was another name for the, the nation of Edom. If you go a little south and a little to the east, that's where you find there. If you go a little to the west, you find the land of the Philistines, referenced in the second part of verse 19. If you go to the north, you find Samaria, the land of the Samaritans. And, and if you go then to the west, you will find this land called Gilead. And so what's God showing here? He is showing that in every direction God was going to bring redemption to his people. He was going to enlarge their territory. He was going to restore to them all that they had lost and more. He was going to give them more than they had had previously. I think this reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke 13 speaking about the end times. He said, people will come 
from east and west, from north and south, and they will recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. There is coming a day when restoration will go out in every direction, when God's rule and reign will be known among all the nations. And I know what it looks like today. It looks like the enemy is winning. It looks like the enemy is winning. And yet the enemy is not winning. God has already won. And just as he allowed Edom for 30 years to live on in their own self-deception that they had won. And then destruction came in a day. So it will be for the enemies of God today. And again, we need not rejoice in that. We just need to know the promise. We don't rejoice in the downfall of our enemies. We rejoice in the reign and rule of our Savior. And we pray for our enemies that they would come and bow the knee to King Jesus. Because thirdly, the third lesson of the book of Obadiah in verse 21 reminds us that there is this coming reality of God's kingdom. He begins in this low place of talking about the destruction of Edom. He lifts our gaze to see God's restoration of Israel as a promise of our coming restoration. And then he shoots way higher to help us to see at the end of this book, the final word is, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And here's what this says to us, church. It's not about Edom. And it's not about Israel. And it's not about the United States of America. And it's not about what's happening in China or North Korea. It's not about any of those things. It's not about what's taking place in Iran today or in Iraq. It's not about any of those things that ultimately our focus needs to be on this as the people of God. That the ultimate kingdom belongs to King Jesus. That that would be our first allegiance and where our focus would go. As you read the news day to day and it can become more and more disheartening as we see all the lunatics that are trying to become our president. It can become more and more disheartening and yet understand this. Understand this. The king of all kings will not be on the ballot come November. He has already won the election. He has already been chosen. The question is, will you bow the knee to King Jesus now? Or on the day of the Lord when he comes in judgment? Will you confess him as king today? Or on the day when it's too late? You see, the king of kings will rule over all the nations. He will rule over all the nations and all the insanity that we are seeing in our world right now will be completely wiped away. It goes all the way back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 asks this question at the very beginning. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Don't we see that today? All kinds of raging and plotting, politics. The kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers, they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing. This is nothing new. This has been going on for the whole history of the world. Those that are set themselves up against God saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Church, he rules and reigns today. The fullness of his kingdom is not yet seen, but he rules and he reigns today. The question that remains is, are you bowing the knee to King Jesus? Are you surrendering yourself to his rule and his reign? One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But I would urge you, I would beg you today, don't wait until that day. Because on that day it will be too late. The final promise here, I want you to see one last thing before we finish. The final promise, he says in verse 21, and saviors shall go up to Mount Zion. Notice he doesn't say savior singular. This is not the savior shall go up to Mount Zion, though our savior did. And he took not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. And he took not a place upon a throne, but his place upon the cross. His rule and reign began in a way unlike any other king. And yet his rule and reign will last longer than any other king. And the truth that he's showing us with that little plural word savior is this. That ultimately we will reign with him forever and ever. And so if you're feeling defeated today, child of God, know this. We will reign with him forever and ever. If you're feeling discouraged today, know this. We will reign with him forever and ever. If you feel like everything is falling apart, remind yourself today. We will reign with him forever and ever. Not because we're worthy to do so, but because by his grace, He has gone out and rescued people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And He is gathering them to His throne. And the Bible is so clear that we will rule and reign with Him. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, this saying is trustworthy and true. You can bank on this. If we died with Him, we will also live with Him. You say, where did that happen? Galatians 2.20, go read it. If we endure with Him, we will also reign with Him. The call to endure and persevere in the faith is again and again and again. It's not just a one and done. I prayed a prayer and got dunked in a baptistry, and now my life is my own and I can do whatever I want. No, you were bought with a price. So honor God with your body. Honor God with your decisions, with your business, with your life, with your parenting, all of it. If we endure, we will reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will most certainly deny us. If we are faithless, here's the truth. If we are faithless, He will remain faithful. Why? Because He cannot deny Himself. The promises of God are based in the character of God. His commitment to you is personal. It's based on His personhood. And so I would say to you today, the greatest thing that we can say in response to whatever it is that we're encountering in this sin-broken world, whatever your greatest struggle is right now, whether it's that diagnosis, that job loss, that child that's gone astray, 
that internal struggle with depression, whatever it is that you're wrestling with in this day, let me give you three words that change everything. King Jesus reigns. That's the game changer. I want you to know that this morning. That is the game changer. If you can look at your suffering and over that suffering you say, King Jesus reigns. And I'm not trying to give you some kind of magical formula just to make you feel better. That's not what that's about. But it's a recognition that the King of kings and Lord of lords is reigning over that which is ruining you right now. That He is ruling over that which seems to be ruling your life right now. He's King over that. And I would ask you today, is he king over you? Father, I pray that you'd help us today. We so need to see our Savior seated on the throne of heaven. To see the author and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He walked through a time of suffering unlike anything we can imagine. But he did it in joy. Because he knew his mission was to rescue a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That we would one day be gathered as one body, one bride, gathered around your throne. No more divisions. Father, forgive us for erecting walls of division over things that have absolutely no eternal importance. Forgive us for that fleshly desire to rejoice over the defeat of those that we have deemed our enemies. Father, I pray that in these days you would give us the mind of Christ. Help us to see things as you see them. And to remind ourselves with every headline, with every hurt, with every hang up that continues to hold on to our lives. That we would make this continual proclamation, not just with our lips, but with our lives. That King Jesus reigns. You are sovereign. So Father, as we close out this morning with this song, may it be a proclamation of faith today. May our faith rise up to meet you. Pray this in Jesus' name.